I also hope that watching American politics play out will give people pause if they start making blanket claims about people's true preferences for democracy in the Middle East, because it's clear that we have a lot of American citizens who are quite ambivalent about democracy and will say that they have a preference for a strong leader, a strong ruler, and that's more important than commitment to civic or political liberties. This is clearly a question that is more complicated across the board and not just in the Middle East. The media often portrays the Middle East as a region embroiled in intense and seemingly irreparable religious and ethnic violence. This simplified narrative, however, fails to capture the more foundational issues in the Middle East, namely underdevelopment, poverty, and socioeconomic inequality. In this episode of the Veritas Lab, we sit down with Professor Melanie Kamet to better understand the sources of destabilization in the region, the potential avenues for change, and ultimately how the U.S. and the Middle East are in many ways more similar than we might think. I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And I'm Caitlin Lee. And this is the Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. Melanie Kamet is the Clarence Dillon Professor of International Affairs in the Department of Government at Harvard, and chair of the Harvard Academy of International and Area Studies. She also holds a secondary faculty appointment in the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and serves on the Lancet Commission on Syria. She conducts research on identity politics and the politics of development, with a focus in the Middle East. Specifically, her current projects explore reconciliation after sectarian violence, as well as the roots of Middle Eastern countries' distinct development trajectories. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Kamet. Thank you so much for having me. Especially following the 9-11 attacks and the rise of ISIS, I think, in general, Americans today possess a kind of warped image of the Middle East. Since you're Harvard's Middle East expert, I wanted to start off this conversation by asking if you could give us a high-level overview of the major issues governing the Middle East. Great. Yeah. Well, it's uh, nice to have the opportunity to talk about this. I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that in general, Americans and many people in the world don't really know much about this region. And certainly in your lifetimes, I think the headlines are all about violence and Sunni Shia conflict and religion and politics. And So people can easily get the misleading view that religion is what guides politics in the Middle East and that many people are extremists. Of course, if you actually look at how many people are extremists, it's a very small minority, but that doesn't matter when they're capturing the headlines. So the first thing I would say is the biggest problems are perhaps the least exciting, but... um, but they have to do with economic development and poverty and inequality. And these, I say they're less exciting because they don't grab headlines. They're not, they're slow moving phenomena. Um, and, uh, and they just don't capture the attention of the world in the same way, but they are really the fundamental challenges facing this region. This is a region that has a long-term structural economic problems, particularly in countries that don't have extensive natural resources, uh, but also in countries that have extensive natural resources, 
uh, and are running out of them. And of course, oil prices have crashed, so you can't really rely on natural resources to bail you out of problems and to fuel your economy indefinitely. So there's a lot of fundamental problems. These countries across the board have struggled to establish competitive economies that provide decent job opportunities for people. And, um, and it's all the more difficult in the current global context and in the context that's been facing the world since at least the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. But again, these are not the problems that get the most attention, uh, even if they are the most important problems. The problems that get the most attention have to do with terrorism and violence and religion and politics. And I would say that you would think, looking at this region, that Sunnis and Shia have consistently hated each other for millennia and have been fighting each other. The fact of the matter is it's just not true. Uh, you don't actually have to look that far back in history to see that. And in my own lifetime of doing research in the Middle East, I've seen this problem spike in ways that it was not relevant previously. So, so I think what's very interesting is to understand why do these identities get politicized in particular moments and how, and, uh, and also um, how they intersect with economic issues and material issues as well, um, and non-material issues uh, for the most part. So I think most people have you know, this mistaken assumption that there's a bunch of religious authorities that control these countries and that religion guides people's political behavior, but in fact, many other mundane factors are the most important concerns for people. How do we get child, you know, access to health and education for our children and the same concerns that people have everywhere else? And I find it ironic that Americans think that religion is such an important factor in Middle Eastern politics, because I actually think it's as least as important in American politics. And that's become very clear in the last several years. So I, I think in some ways you could make the argument that religion is uh, more overt in some ways in the United States in influencing uh, uh, political discussions and political participation than in some Middle Eastern countries. Well, let's dig right into that misconception then. So we've recently seen the rise of the Islamic State and a decline of secularism, and it certainly seems like a lot of the conflict arises in the name of religion. But you mentioned that the public tends to overestimate the role of religion in provoking these tensions. So what's the real cause of violence in the Middle East? So it certainly looks like religion is what is the major cleavage in a lot of these conflicts in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen and elsewhere. But if you look at what's going on under the hood, religion is really not what causes the conflict. There is now appears to be this very pronounced Sunni Shia cleavage that dates back to the schism in Islam in the, you know, in the in the um, seventh century and eighth century and so forth. But the fact of the matter is if you look historically at the very places that are experiencing conflict along these lines, the vast majority of time has been spent in peace between these groups. And I could tell you story after story about how this was not a relevant cleavage for many people for a long time. Uh, and it's only become more relevant over time in the 20th century, and particularly in the late 20th century and early 21st century. But really what has been the biggest issue, take the example of Syria for, uh, for to put some something more concrete here, and, and this would also apply in a slightly different way to Iraq, you have a, uh, a dictator that was in power for a very long time, 
who comes from a particular religious community. In the case of these two countries, Syria and Iraq, that leader was from a minority group. So in Syria, the majority of the population is Sunni. The Assad family is Alawi. Um, and, and that's a, uh, a minority sect of Islam closer to the Shia. And in the case of Iraq, you had Saddam Hussein, who was Sunni, but the plurality of citizens in Iraq are actually Shia. And there's also a lot of um, Kurds as well uh, who are Sunni, but ethnically quite different and, uh, and were the target of Saddam Hussein's repression as well. So, so you had minority rule and each of these rulers certainly had alliances with people from other religious communities, including, you know, Sunnis and Shia and so forth. Uh, they had no problem working with folks from these other communities. That's not the issue. But the fact of the matter is when you are a dictator, and in fact, when you're in charge of anything, I suppose, you like to surround yourself with people you trust. Trust tends to run uh, along in-group lines because those are what your family networks are and those are the people you tend to socialize with um, uh, or have you know, uh, business relations with or whatever it might be. And so these regimes started to look more and more like minority regimes repressing the majority groups. The uprisings were predominantly led by Sunnis, but it's, they were not rising up in the name of Sunni Islam. They were rising up in the name of oppression by a dictator who was increasingly running the country in a crony capitalist way, was no longer supporting redistribution. So more and more people were suffering from economic breakdown, from droughts. There were all these rural populations merging into the cities because of drying up, you know, agricultural uh, opportunities and so forth. And, and so there was a lot of uh, socioeconomic marginalization that, you know, to be sure, fell disproportionately on Sunnis, but not exclusively on Sunnis. Right. So the root causes of the violence were these regimes headed by dictators who identified with a minority religious sect and ultimately tyrannized over the majority of citizens. And this sparked religious tensions? When rulers are in power, they like to manipulate identity politics to their advantage. So you saw that Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Hafez al-Assad and then his successor, his son Bashar al-Assad, started to play the identity card more and more to try to shore up support. So they would say, oh, you know, Alawis or Christian minorities, you're under threat from these extremists. And, you know, it's even been documented that Bashar al-Assad early on in the uprisings opened up the prisons and let out all these Sunni extremists so that he could sort of make a self-fulfilling prophecy occur. Right. So he could say to minority groups in Syria, we're under threat or or the Sunnis that were sticking with him. We're under threat from these extremists. Dictators really benefit from playing these kinds of identity uh, based politics. And there's been some discussion of this in American politics with race and politics in America as well, um, playing the race card, although there is debate about the degree to which it actually works. Um, but uh, but certainly we see rulers doing this and and then and then I said at the outset that religion is not the root cause but it might acquire real meaning and conflict. So what do I mean by that? Um, here's where social psychology comes in. So if your leader is you know constantly telling you you're under threat 
And then you have an actual violent extremist group that rises up and uses violent rhetoric and says, you know, we're going to target you Christians or you Sunnis who are not behaving in the pious manner that we think is the way you should behave or you Alawis for being, you know, heretics or whatever it might be. Then you as a member of one of those groups that is being called out and targeted is going to feel threatened and you might seek protection as a member of that group, even if you don't primarily identify along those lines. And so so what you have seen, and this is uh, something that a lot of specialists on Syria have written about, is that although this did not start out as a sectarian war whatsoever, and there's plenty of non-sectarian bread and butter reasons why people would rise up and oppose the Assad regime, you know, because it was repressive, because the economy was going to the ground, because his cronies were basically controlling everything and cutting everyone out of you know, opportunities for socioeconomic advancement, plenty of non-sectarian reasons for there to be an uprising. But then once it happens over time, and this took a year or two, you know, the regime playing the sect card and, uh, and then uh, the opposition getting militarized and over a number of years, Islamist extremist groups taking over the opposition and starting to control it, then you start to see that the conflict acquires more of a sectarian tinge because the actors have kind of pushed it in that direction. And, you know, for me, this raises really interesting and horrifying questions that are kind of animating my next research agenda, because I think we as Middle East specialists and as specialists of identity politics more generally can tell you a pretty convincing story of why sectarian identities become politicized and how, but we don't know very much about how to bring them down once they've been politicized. And so for me, that's really the next frontier of research. And there are people working in this realm. Uh, and this is, this is where I want to contribute going forward. Yeah, definitely. Understanding how to de-escalate these sectarian conflicts is an extremely important area of research going forward. The clear thread, then, seems to be that we need to focus more on socioeconomic issues in the Middle East, issues of development, rather than solely honing in on religion or identity politics as sources of conflict. On that note, what would you say are the key causes of persistent underdevelopment in the region? It's hard to look at underdevelopment in the region without looking at how uh, authoritarianism has developed in this region. And by this, I mean that in most countries in the region, you've had authoritarian rulers who have helped to cement their rule by economic deals with cronies. So really what we see in this region is a place where corruption has manifested in a way that is inimical to growth because the people that are getting access to economic opportunities are not necessarily the ones that are most qualified or the ones that run the most productive job generating businesses. When we hear about these examples of developing countries that broke out of cycles of underdevelopment and grew, it's almost always on the basis of manufacturing and industrial development. And those kinds of opportunities are really less and less possible in today's global economy. And the Middle East and North Africa are not going to distinguish themselves on that basis. You know, where you are seeing some diversification, is in the oil-rich or resource-rich Gulf countries, 
where they've really diversified into higher skilled services, um, but they've had you know some real advantages there and they've had the benefits of building off of high reserves and so forth to try to actively diversify their economies. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done and I think this is kind of the million dollar question for political economists, for economists who work on this region is what are new social contracts gonna look like Clearly, what's in place right now is simply unsustainable in these kind of middle-income countries that are struggling. And then you have a whole other class of countries in the region where it's just unfathomable how they're going to even get back on a growth path because they've been so destroyed by war and conflict like Libya and Yemen and uh, Syria and to some degree Iraq. Um, so there's a whole other set of questions facing those countries. To touch on more concrete events, perhaps the most defining moment in modern Middle Eastern history was the Arab Spring, a series of anti-government protests, uprisings, and armed rebellions that spread across much of the Arab world in the early 2010s. It began with nations across the Middle East reacting to oppressive regimes and a low standard of living, but seems to have ended with different outcomes. Some countries underwent huge changes, while others stayed mostly the same, so could you give us a brief summary of how you view the Arab Spring? Yeah, sure. So you're right to point to very different um, pathways uh, coming out of the Arab uprisings. You know, they started in Tunisia and quickly spread to Egypt and then spread beyond to other countries. Uh, and there certainly is variation both in the extent to which uh, the uprisings uh, affected a given country and the nature of the demands. So in some countries, the demands were for very explicitly calling for the overthrow of the leader, of the incumbent dictator, as the case may be. Uh, but in other countries, it was more uh, about reform, demanding reform, but not necessarily toppling the entire regime. Uh, but, you know, the places that are really associated with the uh, major changes with the Arab uprisings are Tunisia and Egypt. And in both cases, the incumbent ruler was ousted. Uh, in the case of Tunisia, you can make the argument that there has been a democratic transition, that there have been free elections held multiple times with governments uh, alternating between different political groups and so forth. So you, that definitely qualifies as a democratic transition. Egypt did have a transition, but then uh, uh, Sisi came back in power and remains firmly entrenched in power, and Egypt has actually become more repressive than it was prior to the uprisings, than it was under President Hosni Mubarak. Um, so, so uh, you know, if you look at the arc in Egypt, you could say that that has not resulted in a in a democratic revolution very clearly. Um, and in other places, this touched off widespread violence. Largely because in the case of Syria, for example, you had peaceful protests and then a very violent government response that over time militarized the opposition. Uh, and so what began as a very peaceful revolution actually evolved into a violent war in that country that has destroyed it and set back that, that country for decades. Uh, it's, it's really tragic what is going on in Syria. Uh, and of course, Syria is the, not the only conflict-affected country in the region. You have Yemen, um, to some degree Iraq, although Iraq actually looks better than these countries, and certainly Libya, uh, and really widespread chaos and violence and so forth and instability. And this has really changed the look of the region. Over time, we now have a 
a bunch of countries that we can call the conflict countries with grave and dire ramifications for the well-being of their populations. How would you explain these different trajectories coming out of the Arab Spring with, as you mentioned, Tunisia successfully transitioning to a democracy while other nations are still overwhelmed by violence? In my view, um, there's a number of factors that have converged that make Tunisia uh, more, that made it more probable that this transition would occur in Tunisia than in other places. Uh, And I also want to emphasize before getting into that, that I don't view these uh, events as sort of closed and finished and finalized. That's why I don't like the language of the Arab winters um, and the end of the Arab Springs, because we know in history that revolutionary uprisings very often don't play out quickly and magically and, uh, you know, and suddenly transform countries into free democracies overnight. So the fact that there have been uprisings does not mean that, and, and they were suppressed or, or trickled down or trickle or petered out does not mean that they're over, you know, for history. Uh, but le- getting back to the case of Tunisia, I think there's a number of factors at play here at different levels of analysis. And one factor that I think is critically important and that specialists on the region um, very often point to is the role of external factors, external forces and external support for authoritarian rule. In fact, I'm working on a paper on this right now with a collaborator in the government department. Um, but, but you know, external support in the form of economic aid, in particular to some degree military aid, and perhaps other forms of support, diplomatic support, have been linked with the persistence of authoritarianism in the Middle East. We, in our research, are finding a lot of support for this genre of explanation. And Tunisia is a, uh, supportive of this uh, uh, explanation in that it's simply not a strategically important country for the United States. It doesn't sit on top of oil or other natural resources to any significant degree. It's not close to Israel or involved in the Arab-Israeli conflict, and this has been an important foreign policy issue for the United States. It's just not a geostrategically important country for the United States. To some degree it is for Europe and particularly for France because of colonial ties and because of the the uh, fear that the European Union has of migration, um, but much less so for the United States, which is the biggest uh, supporter of regimes in the Middle East above all others. Um, and so that's one factor. I would not say that explains the democratic transition in Tunisia. I'm just saying it increases the probability. Wow. So American aid may be having pretty serious unintended consequences. We may actually be impeding the spread of democracy. What are the other important factors? Then you have to look at domestic factors. And in particular, the fact that they're uh, evolved over time due to various historical reasons Uh, a very well uh, entrenched and powerful labor movement um, that could really mobilize people across the country and served as a counterbalance to other ideological uh, movements, particularly Islamist movements. So this is a country where you had a real balance of power in civil society groups uh, in a way that you didn't see in other countries. And arguably that's a very important factor when you're going through a transitional period because this is a moment when new institutions are getting written and uh, to have a check on the other side and to have a kind of balance of power of civil society groups 
is very important in making sure that no one side dominates the writing of the new rules and can monopolize power. And so, uh, so what you had were these groups that were forced to collaborate with each other, that were forced to work together and make compromises, and that's how the compromise of Tunisian democratization occurred. But the meta point being that you have to look at a variety of factors that on the one hand are related to external geopolitical factors, and Egypt is certainly a geopolitically very important country that is a major recipient, for example, of US support, uh, and also related to domestic factors and the domestic balance of power. So it seems like initially the Arab Spring was this optimistic moment where the people joined together to replace dictatorship with democracy, but the uprisings eventually gave way to severe insecurity in the Middle East. You recently wrote an article on how perceptions of insecurity, from terrorism to war to mass displacement of people, might affect individuals' political values. What conclusions did you draw from this study? We were uh, picking up on these themes, just watching political developments play out in the region and having our sort of finger on the pulse of debates in the region and spending a lot of time back and forth in various countries talking to people. And it became clear that people's attitudes and preferences about political phenomena are really contingent on what their personal experiences are and their country level experiences are of uh, security condition. I also want to preface this by saying that some of the debates about persistent authoritarianism in the Middle East have erroneously uh, made the claim, or some people intervening in these debates have erroneously made the claim that there isn't much support for democracy in the region. And th that's just not borne out by the data. However, what I do want to say, and what we show in this article, is that the notion that there is a fixed, measurable level of support for democracy is really problematic in the first place because most people are not political theorists, right? They just want to live their lives and have a decent you know, life standard of living and they want their kids to have opportunities. They're not sitting there saying, what are my preferences about democracy? You know, what are my true commitments? Uh, and uh, and and many people's commitments and preferences are shaped by their personal and and uh, societal experiences. And so, what we show in this paper is that those preferences have changed over time, uh, depending on how things were playing out in people's worlds, uh, in their communities, and in their societies. And so. When, uh, when you're in the run-up to the Arab uprisings, people were very pro-democracy. They were fed up with their incumbent authoritarian rulers. Uh, there's a, another work that I've done with one of my co-authors on that paper. We show that um, these, uh, the political economies of the region really had been deteriorating over decades and uh, job opportunities uh, were really not available for educated people and even for uh, you know, somewhat educated people. And so there was growing uh, socioeconomic grievances in the region. Now, I'm not trying to imply that people took to the streets because they were aggrieved about socioeconomic factors because those factors were constant for a long time and yet uh, uh, uprisings occurred you know, in, a, in an un expected, unanticipated moment. Um, so you can't explain, you know, a variable phenomenon with a constant. But 
uh, it's clear that those were background factors that arguably shaped people's desire for political change. The problem is political change occurred, uprisings occurred, incumbent rulers were ousted, and things did not improve in people's lives and arguably actually got worse because of you know instability and uncertainty. Um, and so we show that as instability rose, both in people's personal circumstances and in the national mood, um, you see that there's declining support for democracy. So, so really, you know, what does this thing mean, support for democracy? It's very much contingent on people's lived experiences. And to even make the claim that Arabs or Muslims are not pro-democracy is rather absurd when just like normal people in other parts of the world, um, you know, people's political preferences very much are contingent on their life experiences. So as a final question, we couldn't really end this episode without talking about the future of U.S. foreign policy, given the results of the recent presidential election. The Obama administration was criticized for too much interference in the Middle East, and then our foreign policy strategy shifted significantly under the Trump administration. So what changes do you think the Biden administration will bring? So great question. And these are, of course, all speculative but I would say in some respects, there was continuity between the Obama and Trump administrations in the sense that Trump did not disengage from the region as he said he would. So that's one campaign promise that I don't think he fulfilled, although he did manage to fulfill a lot of other promises, I think, uh, to his supporters. He did, of course, manage to unravel the Iran agreement, the JCPOA. So that is probably the most striking departure from the Obama administration. Um, and I would imagine that the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration is going to work to restore elements of that. It must be very unsettling for negotiation partners across the world to see that things can radically shift so dramatically from administration to administration. And, um, and so it'll be interesting to see how foreign governments work with the United States going forward, because while they may welcome a Biden-Harris administration, some of them will, others won't. They may be wary about how long is this going to last, you know, and who are we going to get in the next election cycle or two election cycles from here. But at any rate, turning back to the question at hand about what foreign policy might look like, I do expect there'll be some effort to repair the Iran uh, agreement uh, you know, the Biden-Harris administration is not going to be a great fan of Iran. No American administration has been. But I think they'll be open to negotiating with them the way that the Obama administration was. Under Trump, you've seen, as I alluded to earlier, this flourishing of relations with, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and uh, his counterpart MBZ in the Emirates and so forth. And so with these conservative Gulf monarchies, not all of them, but particularly the Emirates and Saudi, you've seen a flourishing of relations. And, uh, you know, I don't expect that the Biden-Harris administration is going to cut off relations with these countries, but it probably will not be as much of a love fest as it is right now. And, uh, and they will not be happy that the Biden-Harris administration may try to repair some of that arrangement with Iran, because that has been a real factor aligning the interests of the Trump administration with the Emirates, the Saudis, and the Israelis, the break with Iran. So that's where I think there'll be some tensions. And uh, although my understanding is Netanyahu from Israel has congratulated Biden 
um, on his victory, I believe. I think I read that. Um, you know, it's definitely going to be a, a somewhat cooler relationship, but not radically different. There's been no American administration that has broken with Israel or the commitment to Israel. That's super interesting, and I'm definitely curious to see how it'll play out. I'm afraid that's the end of today's episode, but we'd just like to thank you once more for joining us and teaching us about the Middle East on a much deeper level than we see in the media. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana, and we'll see you next time.